Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe it? When is that going to happen? Has it happened in your life? Every knee shall bow as yours. Every tongue confess. What about ours? Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus was on trial for his life, they brought him um, to his own people. They rejected him and decided to condemn him to death. They didn't have the authority to do that, so they took him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, and they said, we want this man killed. And so uh, during the course of the trial, Pilate kept saying, this man is innocent. I find nothing, there's no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong, and he says it repeatedly, publicly, emphatically. But they keep pressing him and keep pressing him. Finally, there was a, a custom on the high feast days of the Jews that the Roman Empire would graciously show their compassion to subject people by releasing one of their political prisoners. And so Pilate saw that uh, this may be an opportunity, so he pulls out um, a man by the name of Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist. Uh, he was a murderer. We would call him today a terrorist. And so they said, he said, well, I've got two men here. I've got um, Barabbas and I've got Jesus, your king. And I will, will release one of these men to you. And they chose, they had the choice. Jesus, the son of God, or a murderer. Uh, somebody trying to overthrow the government. Uh, people who doesn't... Uh, doesn't shy away from killing people in what they believe to be a cause. And they chose the murderer. And then Pilate asked the question, and this is the question I hope that we as a church can take throughout this season of Lent. It's a very good question. They said, we want Barabbas. And so he released Barabbas. But then there's Jesus. So he asked them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Well, that's a very good question. And that's a question that I want to ask myself during these 40 days of Lent. And as a church, we need to ask that question as individuals and as a group. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? In the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve were in a beautiful place. They were perfect. Environment was perfect. Um, perfect in their relationship with God. They felt comfortable in His presence. Peace with God. Peace with themselves. Peace with each other. Peace with the environment. Peace with everything around them. Um, there was work to do. There were jobs for them. Uh, there was creativity. There was fullness. And there was... Um, a great understanding, a fulfillment in what they were doing and what they were called to do because that's what they were created for. And they properly reflected the image and likeness of God in whose image they had been created. But the serpent comes and says, well, wait a minute. Um, you're being oppressed. Well, they were, 
everything. If you have everything, what do you lack? Oh, but you're oppressed. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, God, he's, he's not a good God. Well, let me see. I don't see anything. I don't see anything that God himself has not said. This is good. It's very good. And the blessing of God is on it. Oh, but, but you know, if you disobey his commands, you can become as powerful, you can become like him. Matter of fact, you might even be able to take his place. So they chose to believe the lie and rebel against God. Then, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And we've been in rebellion ever since. What they did was they they entered into that, and sin came into the world, and not only into the world, but it became a part of who they were. It wasn't just an outward thing, although it was expressed outwardly, like many of our sins. Um, the outward deed is only an indication of the outward, of the inward attitude and choice and rebellion that's there. The inner selfishness and self-centeredness. The inward things that make us in a negative way who we are. And immediately there's division and strife created. And there's exclusion. And all of a sudden, where they had the whole world before them, now all of their attention becomes very narrow and very focused on me and mine and I. So it went on, and God still, in his mercy and grace, provided for Adam and Eve there. They were excluded from the garden, but he met their needs, and he gave them a promise of a time when that would be healed. Part of his plan for doing that later on involved a man by the name of Abram and his wife Sarai. And God called these people and he decided of these two individuals he was going to create a whole new nation out of two people. Now our church understands that. We have churches with big, our church has many big families. So he can start with two people and it won't take long to have a lot of people. And so he's doing that with Abraham and Sarah. And so he begins to work in their lives and um, over the course of many years because God is looking over the big picture here he creates a whole nation and he brings them to Mount Sinai and he takes this loose group of people and he forges them into a unified cohesive nation a nation under God created by God and for God to be God's witness to the rest of the world in 1 Samuel chapter 8 they rebelled against that. Uh, they had a theocracy where God was king. Can you imagine that? Ruled by God. Uh, the nation ruled by God with the laws and justice and all of those other things that, we, that go with government and people living together in an orderly way. 
God was the king. But they came together in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, and they said, no, we don't want God to rule over us. We want an earthly ruler that we can be like all the other nations. Um, thus again, denying their call and denying their very reason that God created them was to be a unique nation to call other people into obedience and understanding and proper relationship with God. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. Uh, we want to be like them. Because the pull of the world is very, very strong, isn't it? And it's difficult to be a unique witness. Uh, it's not a popular thing most of the time. So they came together and Samuel the, the, the judge, Samuel the prophet, Samuel the priest, Samuel now the intercessor, Samuel the kingmaker. And God speaks to Samuel and he tells him in verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. So God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden to have dominion and rule over the earth. God had set up the nation to where God had dominion and rule over the people of Israel. That was rejected by Adam and Eve. It was rejected by Israel. And so what happens then? In Genesis chapter 4, right after they were expelled from the garden and they began to have children, they had two sons, Cain and Abel, two sons. Um, very, very different men, very different spirit about each of them. And as you know, Cain, because he's in rebellion against God, his sacrifice was not acceptable, and he's angry, he's mad at God. Um, so what he does is he takes it out on his brother because Cain is bigger, he's older, he has power over his younger brother, and he abuses that power to hurt him and more than hurt him to kill him. God comes down before the event and he warns Cain. The Lord says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. very next verse, Cain calls his brother out to a field and kills him. Instead of ruling over this desire, this spirit of anger and bitterness, uh, jealousy, instead of ruling over that, he allows that sin to dominate him and destroy him and his brother. So the scripture is very, very clear on this. Sin desires to have you. You must control it. You must rule over it. It's not an easy thing to do. Psalm 119, 133. Psalm 119 is the long, long, longest uh, psalm. 
that we have. And in verse 133, the psalmist is addressing this issue. And he says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. David had said the same thing earlier in Psalm 19, verse 13. He's asking that God would keep him from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Presumptuous sins, sins that we presume that God will always forgive our sin. So I can go and commit this sin, it's okay, because I can always ask forgiveness later, you know. That's a presumption, isn't it? That's assuming on the grace and mercy of God. And God knows the motive of our hearts. We're not deceiving God in that. Uh, We're only deceiving ourselves. Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. And he's going to talk about the fight in verse 7 that goes on inside. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign or rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control one that we don't use very often. It is a gift of the Spirit. It's a result of the Holy Spirit being in us. It's necessary because we don't do very well on controlling ourselves. Apart from the grace of God, I don't know anybody who does it. But Paul says, let not sin rule or be Lord in your mortal body to make you obey its desires. Proverbs 5.22 says that people are ensnared by their sins. 2 Peter 2.19 says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body. He says it again. And he talks about um, being enslaved to sin. Jesus said it in John 8.34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus came to set us free. So if sin is ruling in our life, if these things control and guide us, then what shall we do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Jesus is Lord, is he? Is he? If not, then what shall we do with him? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable. And in the parable, Luke 19, 11 through 27, we talked about it last week. In this parable, a nobleman, verse 12, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and said, Engage in business till I come. 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And then the accounts are given. And the summary of that is in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's a story, isn't it? A parable. Y'all remember Herod the Great? He was the guy that was on the throne when Jesus was born. Uh, And when Jesus was born, wise men from the east who had seen this star, this sign from God from heaven uh, about a king being born. And they came and they asked Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's why Jesus came. That's who he is. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And so he wanted the nations to know that he was coming and he was bringing his kingdom with him. And so when Jesus is born, God sends these messengers these wise men who are seeking after God. And they said, we're here to find him who was born king of the Jews. And the response of the Jewish government was to try to kill him immediately. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Not just at his public ministry, but at his birth. And so this world in its rebellion against God, has always been hostile to him, their own creator, the one who provides and cares for them, the one to whom they owe their very existence, always, consistently, without fail, have been hostile to him. When Herod the Great died, it was 4 B.C., now, He had already killed three of his own sons. The last one, just before he died, was supposed to be his heir. He killed him because he saw him as a threat. Killed his favorite wife. Killed his mother-in-law. So for him to sign a decree killing all these boy babies was no big deal for him. He was a brutal, callous man. When he died, he had three remaining sons that he divided up the kingdom, or was supposed to be divided into. Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Archelaus. The part uh, of Israel that fell to Archelaus was Judea. But because the Roman government was over all of this, these sons had to go to Rome, just like their father had done, and have their kingship, their authority, confirmed by the Roman government because that was the real power. So Archelaus went to Rome to persuade Caesar Augustus to allow him to enter into his inheritance. The Jews hated Herod the Great. He did a lot for them, um, but they hated him. So they sent a delegation of 50 men to Caesar Augustus, and they said, we don't want this man to be king over us. Does this sound familiar? Augustus, because... 
Herod the Great had been valuable to him, and his father had been valuable to uh, Caesar himself, the original one, Julius. Because these men had done favors for them, he confers the authority on Augustus. He didn't get the title of the king, but he got the authority, and he got the rulership, and then he came back home. That was one of the reasons why uh, God appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, you don't go back to Judea. Uh, Herod tried to kill him. Um, you go to Nazareth instead. So Jesus telling this parable, this is part of their recent history, their political history. There were a lot of people alive who, went, who lived through this and knew about this. And so when Jesus puts this into the parable, they automatically, they understand the issues and things that were going on and talking about it. So, but it's more than just a parable, and it's more than just a historical background, isn't it? Because then, when Jesus himself rides into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry, and the people are proclaiming him Son of David, uh, Messiah, the Anointed One of God, and they're all gathered around, and this is a very public thing, and people from all around the world are there. And the voices are being raised, and it is very intimidating to the power structure. That was a very sinful, selfish power structure. And so they have a mock trial. They couldn't agree on the witness. Finally, they had to ask Jesus himself before they could condemn him uh, because they couldn't get their witnesses even to agree. So the outcome of the trial was a foregone conclusion before he ever stepped foot in the court. They had arrested him with the purpose, sole purpose intent of killing him. So they bring him before Pilate. Pilate says, nothing wrong with this man. He has him beaten, severely beaten. And in the mockery, they threw a robe on him, pressed the crown of thorns, and Jesus is brought out by Pilate again to them. Here is the man, this battered shell of a man now. And they said, away with him, away with him. That's not enough. Uh, Pilate said, he's innocent. I'll beat him half to death and set him free. And they said, not enough, not enough. We don't want that. We want him dead. Behold the man. We want him dead. He hasn't done anything wrong. Um, So then, he says, behold your king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So who is Lord of your life? Who controls, dictates to you what you do? Is it a physical thing? Is that an attitude or a spirit that's in you that compels you to do or be or act in ways that you know are wrong? That Paul talks about in Romans 7. The things I do, I don't want to do, but I find myself doing this way. I know it's wrong to react in that way, and that, that's what I do every time. Uh, or, you know, um, it's right there, and I... I just can't resist it. So who's Lord of your life? Behold 
your king. We have no king but Caesar. I have no king but greed. I have no king but anger. I have no king but fear. What is it? Then, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Well, the people of Jesus' day, they knew. We don't have any king but Caesar. We don't want this man to rule. We don't care who it is as long as it's not him. Because he will change me. Okay? Caesar's your king. Then, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now, that's a decision that we make daily. That's a decision that we need to make in our lives as we walk through these next 40 days. Is he the man, Jesus? Is he the king? Is he ruler of our life? Jesus said, I have come to set you free. And if I set you free, you're going to be really free. Really free. It's not just words. You will be free. Then we have a responsibility to use our freedom well. Paul writes about it a lot in the church. He said, don't, lose, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. You can go back. You can. You're free. You can go back and be in bondage again if that's what you want. But when you're free, you have a real choice. A real choice. So what about us? What about this Jesus who is called the Christ? He died for you and me. Let him be crucified. And they did. But in his dying, in the weakness, in his taking upon himself the power of that sin in your life and mine, he destroyed it eternally. Destroyed it eternally. So if the Son sets you free, you're free. And we can go and follow and walk with the Lord in freedom and newness of life. What shall we do this morning with Jesus who is called the Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we call you Savior and Lord because that's who you are. You are our Savior. And we ask, Lord, that you would be in spirit and in truth in the reality of our everyday lives, Lord of lords and King of kings. That this Jesus, who is called the Christ, you, Lord, we will place in your proper place our Creator, our Redeemer, our Sustainer, our hope, our peace, our righteousness. We ask that that would be a reality in increasing measure. In Jesus' name, amen. In 
the book of Psalms, Psalm 118. This is one of the Messianic Psalms. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it a lot. And he makes a statement in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So what was happening as Jesus was hanging on the cross? The builders of the kingdom of Israel, the builders of government and religious authority were rejecting this stone. He's the stone that was rejected. And they threw this stone into a cave and rolled another stone over it. We have rejected this stone. Now it's out of sight and out of mind and sealed and we do not want to build on this stone. But God takes this stone, he rolls away the the hindrances and does away with it, and he brings Jesus out and builds the kingdom of God on him. He's become the cornerstone, the linchpin, the one that holds it all together, the foundation on which everything is built. He has become, on the cross, our rock of salvation. He is our refuge, our stronghold. And so that's what was taking place. The rejection was taking place. It was an ultimate rejection, wasn't it? Nailing him to the cross, mocking him, spitting on him, hitting him, um, challenging him when he's utterly and completely helpless and defenseless. We do not want him. And God said, he is your only hope. And through him, you can be set free. This is the day that the Lord has made. The day when the rejected cornerstone has become the cornerstone of our salvation. That's the day. And that's the day that he has made. That's why we rejoice and are glad in it. Because the verse right before that, verse 21, says, Lord, you answered me and have become my salvation. And that's what God has done for us. That's what he was doing in the upper room when he washed the feet of the men who are going to deny him, when he washed the feet of Judas who was going to betray him, when he washed the feet of Peter and James and John and all the others who were going to run away. And after he had washed their feet, he told them, you call me Savior and Lord because that's what I am. If I do this to you while we were still in our sin." How much more ought we to do this for one another? So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body and it's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood and it's shed for you and for many 
It's for the forgiveness of sins. And so the stone that's rejected becomes the building block of our salvation. And he invites us to come and find our place of refuge in him. Find our place of peace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to reconcile us back to God. To return us to the position that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before the rebellion took place where they had clean hearts and a clear conscience and they enjoyed and rejoiced in the presence of a holy God. And he invites us to come and enter again that relationship for which he died and rose again. So again, um, our communion is open to all and there'll be someone to pray if you need someone to pray with you.